0: Okay, welcome to the second class of Hebrews core studies. This will be the second of five in this first unit, where um, we'll be covering hopefully the first four chapters of Hebrews, because that's about all you can even hope to get through in five hours, is four chapters, and if we get there, it's still going to be a work of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) So let's uh, begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather and study your word, specifically the letter to the Hebrews and the blessing that it is and has been to the church for two millennia now. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes and let us behold wonderful things from your word. In your son's name, amen. All right, so I'm just going to as review of last week, I'm just going to read the first four verses and go on to the fifth and sixth. This is the setup. First four verses, which were last week's discussion. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us. In Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, period. That's actually all one sentence in the original. And the main point, the main verb, the main subject is in verse 2. Well, actually, God is in verse 1. That's the subject. God, the main verb, is spoke to us in verse 2. God spoke to us in Son. That's that's the main point of this. Everything else is Everything else in that sentence is hanging upon those truths or, or supporting that statement. The first verse is saying God had spoken previously, long ago, many times, many ways, through prophets. And then all the verses that follow in son are descriptions of that son. And it takes us on a journey, if you look at it, a description of that son. First, he's appointed some point in the past, he was appointed to be the heir of all things. Then he creates all those things. So he was appointed to be the heir of all those things before he created them. He creates them. He happens to be the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, meaning he's got the full essence of God. Everything about him is God, yet he's called Son. And not only did he create it not only is he God he upholds the universe by the word of his power he continues he's continuously spoken words that sustain the universe he's been doing that from creation all the way up until now and he will continue to do so forever and then after all that he makes purification for sins and that's interesting um it didn't say anything about the incarnation. It didn't say that he came. It's implying that he did. Because interesting thing about this statement, purification for sin, this is actually a statement unique to Hebrews. Paul never uses this terminology to describe the gospel. The author of Hebrews is introducing a new concept for us to consider here. This son came and made purification for sins. That's that's the one hint of the gospel, and not only these this verse. But this whole chapter, we'll see that. This chapter is not about the gospel. This chapter is about the sun. It's going to be an expansive look at what he said in these first four verses. So, but after he made purification for sins, which is a summation of the entire work he did on earth, all in one little phrase that he's just going to leave there and not talk about till he gets to later in chapter 2. After that, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on High. And this is the point he's going to elaborate on in chapter 1. The sitting down at the right hand of the Majesty on High. He's going to put aside the purification percent stuff until later. But right now, he's going to make a big, big deal about this sitting down at the right hand of the Majesty on High. Having become, verse 4 very strange language perhaps and we're gonna we're gonna think about this he's gonna explain it and we're gonna have to think a lot about it hopefully we'll have time today he sits down at the right hand having become that verb's interesting having become meaning he wasn't before he's become something new and now that he's at the right hand much superior to angels As the name he has inherited, he has inherited, he didn't have it until now, is more excellent than theirs. So something happened when he sat down at the right hand after making purification for sins. He's become much more superior to the angels, and he's got a much more excellent name than them. And, wow, there's a lot of questions that should come up (laughs) critically in your head about that one. It's like, really? What do you mean by that? Well, let's go on. For, Four, to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or, again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. I'll stop there for now. And what I want to do is quickly give you my notes. Start with an explanation of these verses 5 through the end of the chapter 14. There's structure, there's some interesting patterns going on here. The first thing I want to say is, that uh, scholars have come up with a name for this section, too. Remember last week, there was a name for verses 1 through 4. It was called the Exordium. Well, verses 5 through 14 is called the catena. The chain. The catena chain. is a chain. That's what it is. If you look it up, uh, which I had to. Catena is a chain of arguments that are closely connected to one another. But more specifically, there's another one that applies to what we're reading here. The katina is a set of quotations used to make a theological argument. And if you look at verses 5 through 14, you'll notice a lot of quotes, a chain of quotations. Indeed, he quotes Seven different verses straight from the Old Testament. Without even telling you that he's quoting them. He uses them as if they're just his own words. But he's actually quoting them verbatim. From the Greek Old Testament that he had to work with. And that Greek Old Testament is known to us. We call it the Septuagint. And it's... It's got the abbreviation LXX. And you say, well, what does that have to do with Septuagint? Well, the LXX is um, a Roman numeral, which means what? LXX. 70. 70. And Septuagint is, the Septuagint is the 70. It's, it's like a Greek word for 70. And what it's referring to is there were 70 the 70 Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek prior to Christ like 150 BC this was done this this translation is actually we still have copies of it today this is the oldest translation surviving translation of any work of literature in the world it goes back that far 200 BC there's somebody took 70 scholars of Jewish scholars who knew nothing about Christ, took this Old Testament in Hebrew, and they made it in Greek. And the the wonderful thing about the Septuagint translation is, before this translation occurred, the Hebrew Old Testament was, really could only be read by and understood by a small community of people in a very small little corner of the earth that you can look on the map today and see Israel. It's pretty small. There's not smaller than, what, state of New Jersey. And the people who lived there, they were the only ones who spoke Hebrew, who knew Hebrew, and they're the only ones who could read it. So, when this happened, when this was translated into Greek, by this time, Greek was the world's language. It was the language of empire. It was the language of the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire before the Roman Empire. So, anybody and everybody in the Roman Empire conducted business in greek they wrote in greek they read greek they knew greek it's how they communicated with each other but the different cultures all had a common language greek so the wonder of wonder of the Septuagint is that the scriptures were finally available to the whole world for the first time ever so this particular translation was accessible to everybody who was reading at the time of christ and during the time of the writing of hebrews in that first century and essentially it was the bible of the early church think about it i mean they didn't have any new testament yet this was it they had this greek old testament and they all knew greek well they used the greek because they couldn't read hebrew actually by this time hebrew would kind of almost become a dead language the only ones who knew Hebrew were the scribes, the educated Jews. The common Jews had lost Hebrew already, and they were speaking a local dialect called Aramaic. But they also knew Greek, because they had to if they wanted to communicate with all the other nations that were they were doing business with. So this Bible, this Septuagint, is the Bible of the early church. And it's the Bible, it's the... It's the Bible that this author of Hebrews chooses to quote from. And he quotes a lot. This is, this is just a sample. He's going to quote a lot in this book from the, old, from the Septuagint. And keep that in mind, it's the Septuagint he's quoting from. He's not translating from Hebrew. So if you ever take do the exercise that I've done and actually look up these quotations in their original context, sometimes you're going to be shocked and wonder, where did he get that? Mm-hmm. Because that's not what my English Bible says. Because our English Bible went straight to Hebrew. He's taking what the Septuagint said. He's taking Greek. And sometimes they don't match up precisely. The ideas are there, but they use different wording. So just so you know, because these, these verses are straight from the Septuagint. If you look at the Septuagint you can see the verse, he just lifted it and put it in his text here. Seven different quotes in this section and many, many quotes to come. Now one other interesting thing about these quotes, they're almost all from the Psalms. Six of the seven are from the Psalms. One is from what's known as the covenant of David that God made with David in Second. It's quoted in Second Samuel and it's in uh, Chronicles as well. First Chronicles. And I've got it listed there, so you can see that shows up twice in the Septuagint, also in our English Bibles. And we'll get to some of those. So just so you know, most of these are from the Psalms. And what what our author is going to do here is he's going to give a Old Testament basis for what he said. <coughs> not entirely what he said in the first four verses, but what he specifically said about the sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having inherited a greater, more important name. He's going to explain that part with these verses more than anything. He'll say almost nothing, absolutely nothing about purifying sins. And the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, that will be implied, as will creation will be mentioned once and the upholding of the universe is implied. But he's not focusing on that. He's, he's going to make a case for why what he just said about sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having a inherited a more excellent name than angels is so, so important. And the beauty of it is he's using the Old Testament scriptures to make the case for him. So that's what he sets out to do. And um, just further statements about the, the way he has this um structure set out i said there's seven quotations well the first two are paired the second two are paired third two are paired and the final one is like the conclusion of the whole thing the seventh one so they come in pairs and it's it makes sense as you read them there's always there's two quotes saying essentially the same thing and um the other thing i'll make a note of is that if you look at the beginning of this Katina, as it's called, verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say? And you look at the end of the katina in verse thirteen, and to which of the angels has he ever said he says basically the same phrase. That's like a that's called an inclusio in got the word there. You could call it a sandwich. Two ends. It's a bracketing, it's an obvious bracketing. It's meant to be there so everybody sees what I just did as a unit. I started with the same phrase and I ended with the same phrase. And everything in here is connected somehow. And he makes his case. So just notice that and also if you notice what he's saying in that verse thirteen, sit at my right hand. That's that's a repeat too, right? He sat at his right hand in verse three and here he is sitting in his right hand again. So he's He's taken us, I'm going to explain this, sit at my right hand thing. And by the time he gets to the end of one, he's explained it. Or at least he's presented a picture that should make us go, wow, that's amazing. So that's what it's about. That's what this katina is about. It's about showing from scripture, from the Old Testament, from a thousand years before he even came on the scene, before Jesus even came on the scene, that God had already predicted all this, and Jesus has fulfilled all this. Now, let's follow, let's look at the argument that he's making in these verses. And this is where we'll go through them. Verse five, two quotes in verse five. You are my son, today I, I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2 7. We're going to look at that in more detail. As we go. And then I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's the quote that God, that's the promise God made to King David about one who proceeds from you, you, one of your sons. I'm going to call him, I'm going to be his father and he's going to be my son. That's a pretty... Pretty interesting statement God made to David, and who fulfilled that Solomon other Hebrews Christ. Solomon first, but Solomon f- failed, <laughs> and Christ didn't fail. he succeeded, so there's a case there, and um let's see I'll hold off on digging into those two it just it's common what he's saying here is... This son, this son is God's son, not just any old son. This is God's son. And God is the son's father. He's making a bold statement there. The Old Testament made this statement for him. And he's saying, the son I'm describing in Hebrews 1 through 4 is the son of God. That God claimed as his own. This is my son. And the son would look up at the father, look at God, and go you're my father. And we know from the Old Testament, people didn't call God their father lightly, if at all. And Jesus comes on the scene and he's calling God father the whole time. And even inviting his followers to call him father as well. So it's something new that was promised to David a thousand years before. So that's Verse 5, the two pair of verses in verse 5. The next pair of quotes, he shifts over to a different argument, and the argument is, compare this to the angels. The angels are neither human nor divine. And he does that in the two quotes that follow in verses 6 and 7. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him, from Psalm 97, 7. And also of the angels, he says in Psalm 104.4, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So the next pair of quotations is saying, here's what the angels are. Compare that to the son. Now, he just said the son, God calls him his son, and the son calls him his father. Now, another thing, if we did go look, if you remember what God said to David, that one of your descendants will... This will be true of one of your descendants. That implies right there that this son is going to be human, right? I mean, how can he descend from a human David if he's not human? So the implication is not only is he divine, but he's going to be human. There's a connection there. That's what the 2 Samuel quote is making, and the Hebrew's author is making it clear. If you know what he said, he was saying this to David... He was saying, one of your sons, I'm going to call him my son, and he's going to call me my father. So, divine and human. Now, the angels contrast that. The angels, number one, they worship the son. They bow down to him. Interesting that they're bowing down to a human. And And God. So he's God, but... They're also just winds and ministers. Winds could be translated um, spirits. Wind and spirit are the same word in Hebrew and in Greek. He makes his angels spirits and his ministers. They're, they're servants. They worship God. They bow down to God, who happens to be a man in this case. And they're just ministers and servants. Nothing wrong with them. This is not... a this is not a put down to angels. This is just a statement of saying, "Look, y'all kind of know what angels are, right? We all have our view of angels, and we and they're good views of angels. Nobody has a problem with angels. Usually, we think angels are cool; they're nice to have around. They do good things, but they're just they're spirits. Yeah, we understand that, and they minister, they serve, and nobody worships angels, so we shouldn't. But I'm talking about somebody." Who's much, much better than those angels? You, the angels are good? You think they're good? Listen to me here. Listen to, consider, consider somebody who's far, far better than these angels. As good as they are, he's way above them. That's the point. That's what he's making. He's not putting the angels down. He's lifting the sun up. Saying, like, you know how good angels are. This guy's way better. Way, way better. All right. Then the next pair of quotes, Psalm 45 and Psalm 102. These are extensive quotes, multi-verse quotes. Verses 8 through 12 in Hebrews 1. The first uh, couple verses are a quote from Psalm 45. And I haven't read this one yet, so I will. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Wow, the author of Psalm 45 just called the Son God a thousand years before he came. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. I mean, God's eternal, and this person sitting on this throne is God. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, listen to this quote, therefore, God, your God, So God just called someone else God who happens to be a king who comes from David. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Anointed with the oil of gladness. What does that allude to? Anointing with oil. Who? uh, or king. Kings were anointed it, in he's recently. being anointed as a king, but who does the anointing? Holy the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> That's the implication. It's not what it specifically is saying, the Holy Spirit, but you see there's a Trinitarian hint here. Mm-hmm. God, your God, has anointed you. I mean, when they wrote Psalm 45, it was God was anointing a son of David with oil. But this author is implying that God is... Anointing his son, who is also God, with oil. Is that word anointing, is that related to the word Messiah? Yes, it's related to it. It's a it's verbal Different. form. So he's the Messiah, but the Messiah is the Christ who is anointed. In the New Testament, we know that Christ has got the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him, when he, especially from the baptism onward. So there's a, there's a hint here of a Trinitarian God. Not explicit. The original readers wouldn't have seen it. They wouldn't have thought it that way. But the way the author of Hebrews is presenting it, he's presenting a Trinitarian view here. Hinting at it. Just letting He's just letting the words of the Old Testament speak in this context. And you go, whoa. There's something going on here. And then he quotes... The other psalm, Psalm 102. You, Lord, now he's calling him Lord. He went from God, son to God to Lord. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, creation. And the heavens are the work of your hands, creation. So you created. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So this statement from Psalm 102 is claiming that, basically the author is saying, The Son, who is Lord, is the creator of all things, but those things will perish, and he will not. In fact, it says, He's going to roll them up. So he's going to be the one that actually terminates the things. That's a term I haven't heard applied to Jesus, but I think it's kind of cool. He's the creator, the sustainer, and the terminator, <laughs> according to Psalm 102. He's the terminator of all things. He, all these things that he created, he's going to roll them up when they're di- when they're done. But he's not going to change. He's going to stay the same. So he's got an immutability. As that's the, the word that means unchangeableness. That's pretty amazing, and that's coming from a psalm as well. By the way, all these psalms are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them, except for Psalm 45 is attributed to the sons of Korah, whoever they are. But there's, they're not David's psalms. These are psalms. They're just, if you read them, they're psalms. They don't say who wrote them. And the Holy Spirit is speaking through them. And the author Hebrews is grabbing... These texts and just saying, look, 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 can't you see the connection here? The son was predicted years ago. He's fulfilling everything that has been said of him in the Psalms. So those are the three pairs of verses that he's made arguments from. And then when he gets to the final quote from Psalm 110, 110, 1, it's basically a summation, the concluding statement. To which of the angels has he ever said, which is the inclusio in, but he hasn't said this to anyone else. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's, that's the big point he's driving at. This divine son rules. He's ruling He's ruling right now. The enemies aren't all at his feet yet, but he's still sitting at the right hand right now. The Psalm 110.1 has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled when he took his seat after his <clears throat> purification for sins. That's the point he's made, and he's made it brilliantly from quoting Old Testament writers and piecing them together. And verse 14 is a, is a contrast to 13. Are they not all ministering spirits? That's just basically, he's restating what we already saw in Psalm 104, remember? He makes his angels, winds, spirits, ministers, servants. Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? See the difference? The Son is God, he's Lord, he's seated at the right hand creator of all things, sustainer of all things, eventual terminator of all things. And the angels, not so much. As good as they are, that's not what they are. They are not that. They serve him. He actually sends them out to serve those who are to inherit salvation. So the big point he's made brilliantly with the Old Testament quotes He's making the case that, yes, indeed, the son is seated. And yes, indeed, he has a more excellent name than any angel. Name meaning position, authority. He's sitting up there, and he's superior to them, and he has inherited more, a much more excellent name than them, and he's made the case. That's, that's how the author does that. Now... I'm going to go into another description here. Because you're probably still scratching your head a little bit. Like, really? Didn't he just say something? Let's see, this, this, is, this is where you might wonder what's going on. Go back. Let's go back to Hebrews 1, 2 through 5. All right. Verse 2. But in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us in Son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. I'm going to skip down to after making purification for sins in verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son sat down, having become as much superior to angels. Okay, I get that. He's more superior than angels, but it's also interesting that he wasn't superior to angels for a little while that might catch you by surprise like how can God be less than an angel well chapter 2 will answer that one for us actually Psalm 8 he quotes Psalm 8 you've made him a little less than the angels Mm -hmm. so it appears that God is less than the angels but he becomes superior to them Mm -hmm. when he sits down and he inherits a more excellent name than theirs well what name is it This is where you might scratch your head because the quote he uses to tell you what the name is is not what you would expect. The Psalm 2-7 quote. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I thought he already was a son. That's what you should be wondering about. I thought you were already the son. You spoke to us in son... You created through the sun and now you're declaring him son today that's the superior name you have the superior name of son that you're being bestowed upon today it's 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 uh it's like he's using the idea of son two different ways because you think he's already the son how can he become the son how was he not the son he became the son see see what i mean mm-hmm. there's there's like mm-hmm. and um Scholars wrestle with this. They wonder, how do I go about this? I mean, those who don't believe he was the son before think, oh, this is when he became the son. He became the son when he went to heaven. He was never the son until he went to heaven. Well, you know, that's heresy. There's all kinds of scriptures, including verse 2, that says he was already the son, so that's not what he means. Then there's those that say, oh, he's always the son in this verse this quote here in verse 5 is uh, just God saying, Hey, by the way, this is my son. In case you didn't know, there may be something to that. But the way this is written, the author of Hebrews is making a statement that he's being declared son publicly. Now, I want to show you when you see these quotes, it's helpful to go look at the original quote location. And uh, let's go to Psalm 2. Uh, let's just go to Psalm 2 we're going to read this in context and I encourage you to do this when you read through Hebrews in particular these quotes go back and read the context and see where he's coming from because the original audience probably knew these psalms certainly better than us. and when he quotes from Psalm 2 they know the quote but they also know the context of the quote now let's listen to what Psalm 2 says just listen to this and as Christians seeing Jesus, we can see Jesus all over Psalm 2. This is this is clearly Jesus. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord and his anointed. That's the Messiah, anointed means Messiah. So the nations are raging. And When I read this the other day, I was just encouraged because the nations are raging today against the Lord and His anointed one. This is going on. It was going on then, it's still going on. But what about them? This is what they're saying. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's throw off the Lord and His anointed. That's what our culture is saying right now. Raging. But here's what He does. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have set my king on Zion. I have I've been thrown to king. And I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, <clears throat> You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the context is this king I've set on the holy hill is my son. And I have today begotten you in front of everyone else. Everyone sees that's the king. He's the son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. He's promising the son. These nations are yours. The ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You're going to terminate them. You're going to be that Terminator. And then there's the encouragement. Now, kings, be wise, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are you who take refuge in Him. Now, if you can't see Christ, as Christians, we can see this is all about Christ. And the way it was written... God installs a king, calls him his son, and says, today today I have begotten you. It's like there was a point in time where this becomes true, a, a today, and he calls him son. And the author of Hebrews is just taking the quote and claiming there's something about this son who becomes son, a son who's declared son publicly. So just to think about that, mm-hmm. um, I've written some notes here. I probably talked about half of it already uh, out of order. But there's the sun, the divine designation. And I've listed a bunch of characteristics of the sun in places in Hebrews that indicate the divine sun. The, when, when the word sun is used as a divine designation, it's used two ways. Divine designation, and it's used as an office that he enters into as a <coughs> Okay, verse, and these are the words where it implies the divine designation in Hebrews. God spoke to us in him. God created the world through him. He's the radiance and exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He reigns as God in Psalm 45's quote. And then there's other other places later in Hebrews that imply he was definitely divine, especially in chapter 7 when he says the son has neither beginning of days or end of life. That's when he's explaining it to Melchizedek. Says, Melchizedek doesn't seem to have any beginning. The sun's like that. So the sun that he's using, he's using the sun to describe this divine being, eternal creator. So sometimes the sun is used to describe that, but at other times, the sun, taken from Psalm 2-7, he's letting Psalm 2-7 just say what it says, is the title that he is declared when he takes his seat. When he sits down, he's declared the son. Psalm 2-7. Where does it say that? Verse 1-3. Well, I'm just making notes that there's a change in status that indicates he wasn't at some point. This happened after he made purification for sins, after he sat down. Or actually, while he sat down, when he sat down. The change occurred at his enthronement. And then in verse 4, what changed? He became positionally more superior than angels, which means he must have been less than them for a period of time. And he inherited a more excellent name than they. And remember, back in verse 2, he was appointed the heir, and then he inherits later in verse 5. So he's, there's been a change. But they're not denoting a change in his essence, his divinity. It's a change in his status. Mm-hmm. He's gone from being the human Jesus on earth to the enthroned son. That's the change. He's now declared the son. So son is like, a, it's like the title Messiah. He's declared the Messiah. Father Hebrews is also going to declare him the great high priest. That happens when he takes his seat at the throne too. Now, there are several places in Hebrews that repeat this, and I've listed them. Besides what we've just done here, you're my son. We just read through Psalm 2. But Hebrews 4.14-16, 4, through 16, this idea of receiving a title... A new role is communicated in other places too. fourteen, these verses you all know well. Here he's also called a great high priest. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, <coughs> Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we get without sin. All good things we'll get to in the future. <laughs> Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Where is the son now seated? Positionally he's at the throne. Um Hebrews let's see, what else did I say here? Five five kind of requotes. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. There it is again. That's the enthronement. He, he didn't call himself a high priest. God did. God said, My son, after he sat on the right hand. So there's another declaration of the son as the office. And he's going to do it again in 728. Hebrews 728. Repeat it. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who is made perfect forever. Appointing of a son. So, just to think that through. And, as I said, uh, the author of Hebrews tends to follow his mentor Paul because if you think this is odd Paul did the same thing in Romans 1, 3 through 3-4 listen to this the very beginning of Romans now Paul's not talking about his enthronement he's talking about something else but it's actually related it's, he is talking about the same thing in different terms listen to this the beginning of Romans concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God. Declared to be the Son of God. There's that declaration statement. Paul did the same thing. He was the Son and he became the Son in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Paul says that after the resurrection from the dead, he was declared the Son. So he, Paul does the same thing. He was always the Son, but he becomes the Son. All right, just thoughts. Now, I if if you if you are interested in digging into this even more, there's a good read that just was published recently called "The Paradox of Sunship," and it this is a book written proving that the sun is used two different ways and means two different things in Hebrews. Um, It's a bit academic, but it's also a pretty good read. So I just commend you. The thoughts I just shared are mostly from from this. It's a paradox. There are several paradoxes when you think about this. How can the sun become sun? Um, Let's consider some other of those paradoxes. uh, Consider the divine nature of the sun. He's fully God in his essence. He creates all things. He sustains all things. He will end, change them. He's sovereign. His divine nature remains the same, doesn't change. Mm -hmm. But also consider the human nature of the son, which is only hinted at in chapter one. Chapter one is is accenting the divine, but there's a human nature too. He becomes incarnate at a point in time. He made purification for sins at a point in time. He sat down at the right hand at a point in time he inherited a superior name at a point in time so his human nature this is another paradox his human nature did change hmm. it had to I mean he didn't have a human nature and he has one and then the human nature actually Hebrews is going to take us through this it, it's like it's maturing it's developing its he's going to learn obedience from the things that he suffers the human nature is going to learn this hmm. and he's going to suffer a death, and he's going to rise from the dead, and he's going to ascend into heaven. And then once he takes that seat, the change stops. He's fully mature. It's like the sun has to mature into the role of the sun. Mm-hmm. Interesting paradox. He was always the sun, but the human nature has to kind of become the son. And by the time the human nature sits at the right hand of God, he's son fully son. He's fully God, fully man, and he is the ruling reigning son, and he's no longer going to change. His position will change. Other enemies will be submitted to him. We'll have a new heavens and a new earth that he's going to create as a man. That's, that's pretty cool to think. A human's going to create the new heavens and new earth. So there's kind of a parallel between the way that the Lord brought uh, Christ uh, through humanity and then matured him, and then the way that he works in our lives as believers, also, in yep. that we have already been declared righteous, and yet he brings us through a whole process, and in the end, we will be righteous. It's you know, there's a it's, paradox there true. as well. It's, it seems somehow to God's way of thinking, yeah, yep. And another thought to have is, the enthroned Son reigns right now. That's where He is. The Son is at the right hand now. He has been since this enthronement happened. And curiously, the author of Hebrews calls this time in verse one, what did He call it? The last days. So, according to Hebrews, we're in the last days because the Son has been reigning as the Son, human Son, at the right hand in these last days, of which we're in. Ever since He took that seat, this has been true. And he hasn't changed, and you know. positionally, He's not going to change until the Father sends Him back to roll up the earth, to gather His chosen ones, and to change everything, create a new heavens and new earth. There will be a positional change in the future. But right now, he's he's fully God, fully man at the right hand. And this is this is the basis, this is what the author of Hebrews is he's making a huge effort to make sure we get this. Because if we get this Jesus is at the right hand of God right now. And he's ruling everything right now. If you just think about that. It has massive implications to how we live our lives right now here on earth. Everything that he, it's all accomplished. He's there right now, dispensing his spirit right now. I, the book of Hebrews is interestingly not, doesn't talk about what it's going to be like in heaven. It doesn't have a look to the future as good as that is. If you want to see that look, you know, you can see it in Revelation, for 2 Thessalonians. Jesus talks about it a lot when he's speaking on earth. He's not, he's not pointing us to look to that future state. He's pointing us to look to the current state. Just look at where he is right now. I have to if you, if you know Hebrews well, you might say, "No, Jim, I'm going to call you on that one. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 talks about the future. I'm going to read this. This is what you might be thinking. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant." The sprinkle, to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than a word of Abel. That's the future. But you have come. That's past tense. You have come. That's not future. That's now. That mountaintop experience is now. He's not talking about the new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about the now. You have come to that now. And that, <laughs> that belief, that knowledge, that assurance is what the author of Hebrews is going to gradually, little by little, call his readers to put their faith in. To put their faith in the assurance that that's now. That is now. Live like it's now. Consider Jesus, the sun, reigning. This is what we have now. Hebrews 12 is now therefore live by faith. Hebrews 11, which is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction or the, as I said last week, essence of things not seen. It's the word essence. Nature. So, the things not seen have a nature an essence. They're real. They're real. And faith sees the reality of that and we walk in it. And that's where he's taking us. He's He wants to get us from where we are now, dull of hearing, immature, weary in well-doing, to living by faith in the reality that our reigning Christ is there right now. It's real. It's real. The eyes of faith see it as real. He wants to build that in us. So that's chapter 1. I got a few minutes left. I guess I should open up to questions. If anybody wants to have any questions about some of the things I said, go ahead. It says that uh, in the last days he's given us his son. So does that mean there are no more prophets? Oh, that's that's a good question. (laughs) Um, There's no need for prophets the way they were in the Old Testament. I mean, chapter 1, uh, verse 1 says he used to speak in prophets. He doesn't speak in prophets anymore the same way. Now he speaks in son. But Ephesians, Paul would say there's, there's prophets for today, but they're, they function differently. They don't speak authoritative word. God doesn't speak through the prophets like he did long ago and many times in many ways. So there are, but they aren't functioning the same way. Does so that answer, answer your question? have yeah. so a question, Adela? No? Just yawning. I was yawning. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well... Uh, Gosh, that time went fast. <laughs> next week, we'll get the first exhortation of the book, and it actually makes perfect sense. If I had time, I would go right into it. For this reason... We must pay much closer attention to this son. We need to pay close attention to this son. That's the first command of the book. Consider him. Fix your eyes on him. Pay close attention. For this reason, pay close attention to him. That's that's the next verse, which we'll begin at next week. In chapter 2, it only gets better, guys. It really does. Because he hasn't even talked about the gospel yet. <laughs> and the gospel comes in chapter 2. So. All right. Any, uh, any other questions? Was, uh, was the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, was that as scandalous as, uh, say, you know, the, the translation of the Bible into English in the 15th century? Yeah, I'd say it probably was. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good point. When they when they went to Greek, I'm sure the mm-hmm. Jewish purists were ticked. What are you doing messing with our Bible? It, it actually repeats itself over history because the Septuagint became the Bible of the early church, and it, everybody spoke Greek, and then Jerome comes out with a Latin version, the Vulgate, and everybody goes, how dare you? How dare you mess with the Greek Bible? You came out with the Latin Bible, and and, but then over time the Latin Bible becomes the Bible everybody looks at and then about the time of uh, Martin Luther and uh, the reformers they come out with an English or not, uh, an English translation of the Greek or other translations and eventually the King James Bible and everybody gets angry at them because you're messing with the Latin. We had the Latin, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you, and, then, and then the King James Bible becomes a standard English version and then in the 20th century, they come out with the RSV and the NIV, and everybody goes, "What are you doing? This is the divine inspired word, King James." It just goes on like that. So, yeah, it's a repeated pattern. It gets standard, and you think, "Well, that's God's word, and then why mess with it?" Well, truth of the matter is, uh, it's been translated many times, and amazingly, it still communicates the same thing, regardless of the language. So, um, yeah. Any others? All right. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for this uh, opportunity to consider your son, consider his uh, divine status seated at the right hand, superior to all angels and ruling all things, Lord God. Let us consider and pay close attention, close much closer attention to him, that we may have our faith built In Him, Lord God. Please bless Your people as we go forward. Amen. Amen.